Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like to help us continue Cannabis Health Radio, then we welcome your donations. Go to our webpage, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and make a donation today, either a one-time donation or you can be a monthly donor for as little as $3 a month. That's CannabisHealthRadio.com. Go to the donate page and make a contribution. And for those who have contributed so far, Corey and I say thank you. Our guest today can be described as the modern pioneer in juicing of the cannabis plant to heal. He has an extensive education in microbiology, a doctor of medicine, earned his post-doctorate in forensic examination and forensic medicine, and he's a member of a number of cannabis organizations, including the International Association of Cannabis as Medicine. Joining us from the Caribbean island of Dominica is Dr. William Courtney. Dr. Courtney, very good of you to do this. Appreciate it. And uh, just uh, as an update on that, uh, thanks for the introduction. Also was real involved with Todd Micaria, who is the saint um, who put the phrase in the California law of um, that cannabis was to be made available uh, to, to the, for the relief of any other condition which it provides relief. So the fellow that gave California the right to use cannabis for anything is Todd. And um, I remember we would go down to his office for meetings, and we decided that we were going to try to build up the credibility of the pot doc a little bit. And so there's now an American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine. Um, I'm a diplomat of that that organization, and they've asked me to write questions for the certifying exam. And it's, it's just trying to help those on on the margin of is this is this real or is this just Cheech and Chong to kind of uh, say, well, you've got to have three years of experience seeing patients. You have to um, have attended, you know, a, a wide range of continuing medical education courses. And then you have to pass the uh, certifying examination to, you know, to be a, a diplomat or a member of the group. So we're, we're trying to bring more credibility just, just so that we can, ease people's uh, concerns uh, regarding the validity and credibility and the science behind uh, cannabis. I'm wondering, Dr. Courtney, what prompted you to move from California to the Caribbean? Um, a number of things. You know, it, it's we're still in need of serious clinical trials, and Kristen um, is, uh, has a lot of training in research design and statistics, to move forward, there are several things that we need. We need a serum phytocannabinoid level. And as we speak, there's a, uh, an incredibly gracious Mahmoud El-Soli, who is a, uh, the pinnacle of analytic chemistry in this area, having done hundreds of thousands of analyses um, for uh, probably the federal government, anyone that wanted cannabis analyzed. Well, he is developing the protocol 
Because if you want to see what your serum cannabidiolic acid level is, you need to go through a number of steps because uh, the phytocannabinoid levels in the serum are, you know, in the one, two, three, four, five, seven nanogram per millimeter at a very low level. So you need very sophisticated equipment. And in order for that to work, you have to clear out a lot of um, a lot of other substances. And so once that protocol is set up, then we'll be able to look at bioavailability in a meaningful way. In, in sense of if you take a hundred people. And you give each of them 20 leaves of cannabis, you know, and you allow them to eat that daily for a month or two, and then you do a serum level, you're going to find a range of, uh, of serum levels for CPDA. And what that tells you is, you know, this person maybe had hyperacidic environment in the uh, stomach, maybe one had a rapid transit, and so the, the food is moving quickly and what is it absorbed. This one is taking medicines for seizures or for cancer, and so the liver is in a hyper state of meta- metabolism, and what that does is trap the oral cannabinoids, lowering the serum level. And so if you've got someone who has a very serious cancer situation and you want to know that you're doing a clinically accurate trial, you want to know that what you're giving them is making it into their blood so you can say, okay, we've tried it at this level for this many weeks, and we can either increase it or we can switch to a different terpenoid cannabinoid profile and, and look at different parameters but so serum level is going to be a critical element that's being developed and we're hoping the foundation is hoping to get some support to bring on um, an hplc a high performance or high pressure liquid chromatography machine that has a double ms and double mass spectrometer on the backside. so it allows you to make those very very accurate sensitive and so we're going to if, with, with with that analytic equipment with the protocol then we're in a very small environment here where there's, they say 70,000, probably 50,000 people. Most of them are very comfortable with cannabis, but they're fearful of the United Nations Convention on Narcotic Drugs that really provides all the uh, authority to the, to the Controlled Substances Act in the United States. The whole world is, is burdened by the uh, Convention on Narcotic Drugs and fearful of uh, invoking reprisals if they violate them. But within that environment, we're hoping to get understanding support because the government is small enough that we can work with it and we can create special research. And so with that, we'll begin to get some statistics and uh, some accurate uh, sense of the uh, of the treatments that we're trying and comparing. And we can begin to put some real, real science behind um, it's, it really is black box medicine, and I'm actually in the process of writing a pre-publication paper in that area as we speak. Um, and for 100 years, we had no idea how aspirin worked, but that didn't prevent us from using it. It was an analgesic, an anti-inflammatory. It gave some relief. We had them for babies. It, you know, It had a lot of efficacy before we began to look at the COX-2 inhibitors and, you know, and, and speculate on some of the biochemical mechanisms of action that explained why aspirin provided re- relief. Well, cannabis is a very, very, very complex plant um, integrating, um, according to a, a professor out of Italy, 150 different cannabinoids and 130 terpenes. And if you look at the permutation combination of that, you end up with a pretty complex picture, you toss in all the other classes of compounds and, and the flavonoids and the, the prost- I mean, there's, there's a whole range of constituents and 
Western medicine likes to know what the active ingredient is, likes to extract that, and then make a pure compound. Um, and when I was in medical school, they didn't really like you prescribing a fixed-dose medicine. So if you had high blood pressure and you were using one medicine to um, uh, stop the blood pressure, but then maybe a second one to spare potassium, and to put those two in the same pill, you couldn't really regulate it very well. They preferred you to use two different medicines, so you could say, okay, five milligrams of that and 25 of this is a perfect combination for you and your, your physiology. And so when you go to that group who wants a monomolecular active ingredient, they take a look at cannabis, and it's kind of like, they call it, they call it, refer to it as dirty ligands. There are all these molecules, and it's dirty because there's so many of them. You don't know which one is acting and which one's synergistic and which one is a, is a positive allosteric and which one's a negative. And so it's like it causes extreme anxiety. And then you, you go to that same medical group, and if you say, well, you know, right now the United States government has intellectual property that is now under license to Canalife for the development of medications for traumatic brain injuries and for uh, liver conditions. And right now, GW is in clinical phase three trials, a CBD product for children with Dervais. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a patient of mine a long time ago that laid down the groundwork. I mean, this fellow whose uh, child had had Dervais and gone, went through all the traditional antiepileptics and then went through the experimental antiepileptics. And eventually, after being placed on Topamax for three or four years, finally said, this is this is really unacceptable. I mean, all the Topamax does is kind of blunt the physical expression of seizure so that family members are not facing the, the reality of what's going on. So he, or I guess we moved into um, cannabis. And so we started out with a one-to-one, went to a two-to-one, no relief, went to a three-to-one, meaning three times as much. CBD is THC, a little bit of minor relief, and then we got a hold of this plant out of Barcelona that was 22% uh, cannabidiolic acid upon heating, converted into CBD, um, and suddenly his child went from three or 400 a day to a couple a week. We're hoping in this environment to um, be able to develop a library of genetics and with tissue culture, supply them to anyone in the world. If you wanted in a one-to-one plant, meaning equal amounts of THC, CBD, and when you say that, you're always referring to CBD acid, THC acid, as well as the decarboxylated forms. You know, if, if you've got um, spinal cord injury, MS, and you want a one-to-one, we could ship out that genetic. If you wanted a, a plant that was a three-to-one, meaning you know, three times as much CBD, CBDA to THC, that's uh, been identified as useful for the inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis. You know, we can ship you out and there uh, a tissue culture, um, and you can grow it up and, and, and have the ability to include a individualized phytogenetic into your dietary considerations and, and other things that you're doing for your health. Dr. Courtney, I, I don't want to get too technical in this, but I want to, listeners to understand about the ingestion of cannabis and why juicing is so much more powerful than other methods of ingestion. Can you explain because, that? Yes. The consumption of raw cannabis is the way that deer, bear, boar, rabbits, rats, cats, dogs, animals for 34 million years would consume cannabis in their environment. And what is in the environment most of the time is the leaf. Many of those animals 
will not eat the bud when it's there in that phase. They continue to eat the leaf. And when you eat the leaf, you're eating an incredibly complex and delicate substance. Um, we, we know that cannabis has a smell. Those are the terpenes. And if you smell the plant 100 yards away, those are terpenes drifting in the air. Those are the 10 to 15 carbon aromatic small molecules by themselves, anti-neoplastic, anti-inflammatory, analgesic, antibacterial, antiviral. Terpenes are a very important class, and those are just drifting away with the odor of the plant. When you take this living plant and you put it in your mouth, you're going to have the best, most complete ter- terpenoid profile. You're also going to be picking up the best um, of the of the cannabinoid profile, and there's, you know, like we were saying, there's 150 of those, and and so when you use the the living plant, you're getting an incredibly complex and synergistic meaning. If you're willing to eat the living plant, you're going to be getting the terpenes, which some are known to act at a secondary site that that alters the function of the cannabinoid receptor, and you're getting the cannabinoid that acts at the primary orthosteric site. So you have multiple classes of molecules acting on the same receptor in your immune system, in your nervous system, in your musculoskeletal, bone remodeling, whatever, whatever's going on. And so the, the, the living plant is really, we don't even know what's in it yet. Yeah, that's right. When you juice uh, cannabis, are you you don't get high the THC in the cannabis plant because it's not heated does not get you high. Is that because it's THCA? That's exactly why. Um, it's a delicate molecule. It does break down at room temperature, and for people that are into using the bud for high THC preparations, the uh, THC, the THC acid will degrade um, to THC at room temperature. As you apply heat, you rapidly accelerate that decarboxylation or the conversion of non-psychoactive THC acid into THC. We had one plant that was 30% weight-to-weight THC acid. In that plant, the amount of free psychoactive THC was a quarter of 1% in a plant in which you know, there was 120 times more THC acid. Um, and similarly, CBD acid um, breaks down into CBD, CBG acid. And it turns out, very interestingly, the raw plant with this very high content of cannabinoid acids, um, these acids Many of them are acting at what was called the orphan receptor, um, and, and when, when they're acting at the orphan receptor, they're involved in tumor metastasis and tumor growth. And when you heat the plant and destroy the acids, you lose that interaction, which probably is of some benefit in certain neoplastic conditions. So when you're, when you're eating the plant raw, you're getting a synergistic, multifactorial, evolutionary gift uh, you know, a gift that has been developed and refined and tested over time, and I believe collaterally. And so humans, particularly in the medical model, in the pharmaceutical model, they went, well, what is the active ingredient in this plant? You know, for the longest time, it was THC and everything else was just, we don't care. THC acid was a storage molecule. When it was released by heat, it became the active molecule. Well, CBD has kind of taken on that, and I'm probably responsible for a lot of that and cbd is important but it's important in in a context and the context is there's an enormous enormous amount of cbd acid in the living plant and there is some cbd and that's where humans get into problems it's kind of like if a little is good more is better and a lot is best yeah if one is to juice cannabis i've heard you say that you need to take a, a fat with it why is that 
Well, these are very fat-soluble molecules, and they're very kind of water-insoluble. Um, the best way to use cannabis is to chew it or to make a little cut and put it in your mouth like chewing tobacco and just kind of carry it around because that treats the infections in the mouth and you have a slow delivery of antibacterials and anti-inflammatories to the infections in the mouth that release chemokine cytokines that aggravate every other condition in the body. So chewing it is really the high point. Chewing is, is a good way to go. And you can dice it and put it inside. You can kind of cover the flavor and texture a little bit. Blending is next up the list because that is going to put all of the fiber into – you can juice – um, a bunch of vegetables, and then you blend the cannabis in so you get 100% of its contents. And then juicing, you know, which I'm strongly associated with, and I, I did for a long time, and is of incredible value, but is also incredibly wasteful because if you look at the pulp that comes out of that machine, you take that pulp, and I know someone who um, was saving it in their freezer, and uh, was it was inadvertently thought to be chopped up spinach, and they made a spinach souffle out of it, and the pulp was heated. That spinach souffle was, uh, or uh, casserole was very psychoactive. So there's a lot of. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Dr. Courtney, in, in the medical cannabis world, even those of us who aren't on the science end, but just are, are treating, uh, people with, uh, cancer, et cetera, or trying to treat ourselves, uh, you're really well recognized for treating a baby, an eight month old who had a brain tumor. Could you tell us about that? Yes, and um, this was a, was a gentleman who was using actually an oil, and I think it's a 3.8% CBT oil, um, and it was an inoperable tumor, um, and I believe the fellow had to um, had to go had to seek a third medical opinion from a pediatric oncologist because the first two were if this tumor gets any bigger it. it, it makes a mass effect and pushes the brain there's a there's a fibrous sheet that the brain sets on and the brain stem goes through that well if you push if you mechanically push more of the brain through that opening you compress it and um, death often occurs in situations where there's a, a large bleed in the brain or there's a large mass because of that process and so the oncologist is going if this gets any bigger you're, you're going to herniate the youngest and you know, and the child will die from that mass effect. So we really need to reduce the size of that tumor. And since we can't operate, we're going to have to do radiation and chemo, and we need to begin it now. And the father thanked the first pediatric oncologist, and they went to a second, and the second one said the same thing, and he thanked the second and went to a third until he finally found an oncologist who said, well, you seem like you want to uh, do something, like you've got so you've got a, some plan up your sleeve and you need a little bit of time. We'll wait 30 days. No, you, this is a single snapshot. We can't absolutely guarantee that it's growing, but given the size of it at the age, it probably has been and will continue. And if you come back in a month and this has gotten any bigger, then I cannot be associated with any more delays. Um, and that was all that the that the patient needed to kind of uh, demonstrate that there was a shift in lucency, which is you know the density or opacity of the tumor. And the tumor was. It was, the structure was kind of de- decreasing, and it was dramatic enough that the decision was made, well, let's uh, come back again in another three days and, and see. And, and suddenly this thing first it got lighter and lighter, and then began shrinking. And, and that was uh, pretty dramatic. And another that was So that was more with an oil. And another uh, child who um, had a, a pontine uh, aggressive, uh, I think it was atypical rhabdomyoteratoma, 24 hours of surgery. Um, when the first week she went into the hospital, soon as she was stable, 
the tumor grew back. They went to chemo. They went to chemotherapy. They knew it was an aggressive tumor. So you make the decision: Are we going lethal or non-lethal? Given the aggressive severity of the tumor, they went to uh, a chemo that was ten times lethal, which means that you kill the bone marrow. So the child had to have a bone marrow transplant after the chemotherapy to survive. A tumor grew back again, and then. Uh, so they decided that um, she needed uh, mass uh, irradiation, um, put the child under general anesthesia, and then irradiated the brainstem, brainstem for, uh, I think it was 42 days in a row, the child was uh, put into uh, general anesthesia for radiation. And when, the, when the, it looked like the tumor was going back again, the decision was decided, you know, the, they thought there was nothing more they could do, and the question was, do they want the child in the hospital or at home? And they wanted the child to come back Northern California. Local pediatrician, just there's a, there's some newspaper articles that I hope to kind of scan up and get on the website at Cannabis International. The local pediatrician said, well, you know, might as well try cannabis juice. And there's not much else that we can offer. And, you know, that seems to be popular in the area. And uh, the child just started uh, clearing MRIs and tumor shrinking and, I think it was um, two and a half years out or a year and a half out, uh, another MRI was the radiologist said, well, it's quite unusual given the level of radiation that she had received. It would take five years to reabsorb the scar tissue. And you know, at a year and a half, the scar tissue was gone. And, and so here was this kind of miraculous remission that not only included the tumor, but included uh, some of the residual scar tissue. And this was a, a young lady that was doing she did come home at the height of the, the potency of leaf. She came, you know, in, in June, July, plants at the height of veg. A cannabinoid concentration is at its highest, day 80 to 90, falls off sharply as it goes into flowers. She came home then to a community where everyone had uh, fruit tree-sized cannabis plants, and neighbors would just bring over um, bags from the grocery store. And so she had really unlimited access to very high-quality cannabis, and so she was able to uh, do, I think she was doing between four and six um, ounces of, of what I call dry leaf juice, which is you wash the plant off, let it dry in the sun for a day, come back and harvest it the next day, juice it up. There's not a lot of juice in, in cannabis leaf. Um, and so the amount that she was consuming was pretty dramatic. And we don't know, given that has no medical benefit, you know, you can't really do adequate controlled studies. But my sense is that possibly she, you know, two ounces would have been sufficient. We don't, we don't have a handle. It obviously was sufficient for her, and I you know, would run into her in the grocery store you know, three, four, or five years later. Um, but that's what we're hoping to do down here is to get a better handle on you know, serum level doses, how much it takes to give an adequate trial. Is it one ounce? Is it six? Is it four? You know, zero in on some of the, of the profiles of plant that may be related to specific conditions and um that's a very that's a very interesting story one of the things i think uh, that we face in society today because cannabis has been I- illegal in most areas of the world for over 80 years is the fact that the study of this is really in its infancy is it not it truly is and what do you see as the biggest challenge facing you in your work? Um, someone willing to step up to the United Nations Convention on Narcotic Drugs and say, well, they don't really allow countries to back out of that treaty, um, but any law that is bad law is no law. 
And this law is so bad that it really had, does not have the force of law. But it takes someone to say, you know, this this plant is being the United States government is financially profiting from this plant for medicinal purposes. So let's say it has some. You cannot tell me it has none and tell my kids with autoimmune disorders and cancer and diabetes to, you know, die and go through rigorous painful treatments because um, because the United Nations Treaty says it has no medical value. And so, you know, it, and, and yet everyone is terrified, terrified of the, of the United Nations Convention and uh, until, you know, some Paraguay or somebody just really says, you know, I don't really care, you know, come here and arrest me if you want to. Um, but my Spanish was a little um, rusty. And the idea of trying to pass a medical bar, a medical examination in Spanish was <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> you know, doc, Dr. Courtney, the medical profession today, in my view, and I'm sure many others would agree with me, has been captured by the pharmaceutical industry. Pushing pills for symptom relief seems to be the medical paradigm. Based on your extensive conventional medical education, did you learn very much that actually helped you heal people? Well, I, it gave me biochemistry, biobiology, microbiology, pathophysiology. So I learned a lot about illness and disease. Um, I tried to bring nutrition into the medical school, and they threatened to throw me out. Their gorgeous stainless steel commercial kitchen that could, every time you sat down for a meal and here's a tray of food, every item of what's in it, you would, you would become educated in sources of nutrients, amounts, and how, you know, do a two-week uh, low-salt diet, do a two-week ADA diet. And you develop tolerance, and so when you tell someone, "Look at you know, we're going to need try this diet," and I can tell you it is disgusting, but we, we got to step beyond that, you know. But they they said, you know, if I wanted to uh, um, study nutrition, I should become a nutritionist, and and so they put in forty five vending machines, and all these medical students were fed out of cellophane sandwiches, and they had this beautiful kitchen shut down. So I had some problems with nutritional education, and we need that, but right now. You know, GW is uh, somewhere around 500 patents pending on cannabis. Nemus Bioscience is uh, a publicly traded corporation in the United States that, got a, that has a lot of cannabinoids in the pipeline. Canalife is licensing the federal patent for products. So the, the new physician, you know, and, and there's an excellent Health Canada document, uh, 150 pages, trying to bring the nurses and doctors up to speed as to the role of cannabis. You know, sadly, it's a bit dated it primarily focuses on thc and dried plant and doesn't really give a lot of room for the terpenes and the, and the whole beauty of this plant is food but it shows you know here's a country that wants to educate everyone who didn't have it because in order to understand the new medicines coming out you're going to need to you say well, what's the cannabinoid receptor and you know, we're, we're, what do we mean we're acting at cb2 i mean when you can repurpose a drug and, they, and they're in the process of you can save a billion dollars, and any time you can save a billion dollars, you raise someone's attention. Well, you know, they took a medicine that was good for high blood pressure, and they decided, well, let's repurpose this, and it happens to be good for erectile dysfunction. Let's call this Viagra, and you suddenly have a product that's already approved for use in human beings. You save a billion dollars, and then you make a trillion, and that's the kind of numbers that keep that industry kind of excited. Well, this that industry is being pushed, yelling and screaming into cannabinoid science. Uh, it's sadly, it's still this monomolecular, and I refuse to, to give this plant up to, here is the active ingredient, it's CBD. 
or it's CBDA or THCV or whatever it is. And so, but, but in fact, you know, the science is coming, the people are, are beginning to learn about it. And a really big one, a big repurposing was tamoxifen, which is huge for you know, it's breast cancer. A lot of people use it to a lot of benefit and relief. They were trying to figure out how to repurpose that drug. And they found out that that is the first known positive allosteric modulator of the second cannabinoid binding receptor. Now, that's a mouthful, but tamoxifen acts at CB2 in a positive fashion, enhancing its function. Voila! No wonder it's useful in cancers. I mean, the CB2 is a reactive receptor that's installed in the membrane when a cell is distressed or diseased or has something going on, and it's kind of a draws in assistance. And so, to me, the, the thing I'm most excited about living to see is you take a medicine that has clinical efficacy, and it's currently thought to act in this direction, I feel pretty confident that we're going to find that anything that really is effective in the field of medicine is interfacing in this cannabinoid regulatory system. And uh, we need to cleave to humility, and I know there's, let food be your medicine, you know. Um, this is this is the, the ultimate food as medicine, because if you eat it, you prevent disease, and you don't need medicine. If you are in a deficiency state, then it becomes medicine. But you only need cannabis as medicine because you did not have cannabis as food, because as food, it prevents the disease for which medicines become you know, a necessity. Mm-hmm. Dr. Courtney, going back to this eight-month-old with a brain tumor, um, just to clarify, did this child have like raw cannabis juice, or did they use cannabis oil? And if so, was it high THC um, or high CBD or... What were some of the particulars? This was um, this was a study that I was not real involved in. I know the father real well, and I believe the child came up once, and it was something that he was doing. It was an oil, and it was a, at that point a three point eight CB percent uh, weight to weight CBD oil was pretty unusual. So it at least had um, a little more complexity than pure THC. Mm. Uh, so the eight month old was was an oil, and I'm sure that there was THC in it, but I don't have the breakdown on that amount. It was not a product that I was supplying to them. It was just someone he reached out, and I, I it, it could have been just to get my approval of his use of it. And so, with someone you know that was four or five hundred miles away from me, you know, I had another patient who was uh, at the age of eight was put on methotrexate for juvenile rheumatoid, and mm-hmm. it took a couple of years to get that child over to raw cannabis and uh, off of methotrexate with improved improved function, improved response. Um, and it's that same thing. Whereas, if something that has a very low side effect profile gives you the results you want i mean and at least in the area of psychiatry you select the drug by the side effect profile and you, you go through them by the most benign side effect profile to you know more aggressive profiles as you as you go through you know different treatment regimes you know raw cannabis does not does not get any more benign than that raw cannabis provides a lot of assistance with ancillary systems that could contribute to the final result but because we're so kind of both monomolecular and, and single system, you know, if you support another system in the body, that could actually contribute assistance. And so a very, it's a very complex system that supports intracellular regulation that leads to improved function. So maybe an improvement in the thyroid function could complement an improvement in the white blood cell or the macrophage or the antibody. And so there's a room for a lot of uh, 
of utility that we can't label yet. And when you use something as complex as this living plant, it's going to be a long time before we uh, really yeah. know know that. But an oil is oil is is, is a concentrated um, approach, and and that particular oil did have the highest amount of CBD that he could get his hands on. But I don't know what the percentage of THC was in that oil. Okay, um, thank you. You know, for every 30 calls I get from parents these days, 29 of them are children with brain tumors. Um, in your opinion, do you think raw cannabis alone would treat that, or do you think they should be on a, a 50-50 THC CBD? Um, do you have any input on that? My, my input is that, and then when, if you know, I'm going to say raw cannabis is something that you begin day one, and you have a computer-analyzed um, lucency examination if it's a mass object. Um, and I believe, a, I believe a computer that was set up at seven days could say, okay, this looks like a match. Let's push this trial out. If you, if you have, you know, uh, that's what we need to pr- establish down here is, is seven-day trial sufficient or is it a 14-day trial? And that trial has to be adequate, which means the child's serum level has to show that, that it's getting through their their diarrhea and their liver and, and their leaky gut and their gastric acidity. I mean, once we know that the child is getting sufficient amount, and th- then we can say, okay, two week trial insufficient. Let's 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 move to either a different strain or to a different oil. All this being conducted while the oncologist is trying to select the correct uh, combination of you know Kristen and Blastin and, and whatever else uh, they would like to step it up with. But if if something like raw cannabis sh- shows that there is uh, that there is a sensitivity and the tumor is going into remission, then that is the the drug of choice because of its side effect profile. It is a therapeutic essential, which is a level above a dietary essential. It's you take that out of the diet, the APC will drift backwards, the tumor will be allowed to recur. So it's important to help the families realize that you know it, it's food, but it's not just food. Um, it is medicine, food as medicine, and in your case, it's a life-sustaining, uh, and you really don't want to play games, uh, you know, and say, okay, I'm cured now, I'm just going to stop. Because once once you stop in, under the idea that you're cured, your your immune system will drift back to a different level of function in which um, the thing will recur. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Courtney, it was great to talk to you. I see your dogs are, have arrived, so <laughs> we'll, we'll let you go. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yes. And you folks have a very good day. And uh, if people have questions, cannabisinternational.org is, is our website and they can reach me through email. And I do, uh, consultations with anyone that has specific questions, uh, and soon we'll have hopefully a facility down here in Dominica for um, we were hoping we came down here to establish an end stage cancer treatment facility. And it's a slow, slow moving process. But I think we we're making good progress and hopefully uh, we'll be able to work with people in the near future or and not near. OK, <laughs> within a year, we should hopefully uh, have uh, have permission to kind of uh, go into play. Yeah, great. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, yes. Dr. Courtney. Really appreciate it. Have a good day. Okay, you you as well. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it. It's another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Wherever you are in the world, thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 
for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.